The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Rising Tide of CAR T in Lymphoma Guidance on Leveraging Cellular Therapy to Improve Outcomes Across the Spectrum of Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash HEH860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. My name is Jason Weston. I'd like to welcome you to the rising tide of CAR T-cells in lymphoma, guidance on leveraging cellular therapy to improve outcomes across the spectrum of care, put on by Peerview Live. Today, we're going to go through a lot of data, and we have some expert panelists up here with me to help go through these data, and I'd like to introduce my co-speakers first. First, I'm going to allow Dr. Satvan Nilapu, my colleague at MD Anderson, to introduce himself. Yes, hi. My name is Satwa Nilipu. I'm faculty in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at MD Anderson. Uh, my interest is, uh, is to develop novel immunotherapies, including CAR T-cell therapy in lymphoma and myeloma. And Dr. Nilipu is also the deputy chair and the uh, first author on the Pivotal Zuma 1 clinical trial, which we'll review today. And next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Allison Siegel. Hi, I'm Allison Siegel. I'm uh, I'm faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, and I'm a lymphoma and leukemia specialist. I have been involved in a number of the clinical trials in both aggressive and indolent lymphomas. And Dr. Sigel did a lot of pivotal work at, at UPenn, as well as the uh, lead author on the pilot study, which we'll go over today. So let's dive right in. First steps, we're going to review the CAR T-cell process. CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor. And you can see the cartoon on the left side of your screen here showing the schematic for a CAR or chimeric antigen receptor. There's an external portion, which is generally the binding domain of an antibody. There's a transmural and then an intracellular domain. And the different generations of the CARs are shown here, first, second, third, with adding on more in the co-stimulatory domain, generally which is 41BB or CD28. The actual process for making a CAR T-cell, for the ones we're talking about today, an autologous CAR T-cell, involves collecting the T-cells from the patient in an apheresis procedure. T-cells are then transfected, generally with a viral vector, to introduce the relevant genetic material, which then leads to transcription protein expression of the CAR on the cell membrane, and then these cells are reinfused into the patient after lymphodepleting chemotherapy. This is a process familiar to many of you, but it's something that we forget is a relatively new finding over the past few years. And the reason we're talking about today is it's a revolution in terms of how we care for our patients with many different malignancies. These are the CAR T cells that are currently approved for use in patients as a standard of care. Axicaptogene cellulosal is approved for patients with relapsed large cell, refractory to first-line therapy, or it's relapsed within 12 months. We'll go over a front-line therapy. We'll go over the Zuma 7 trial that led to this in the talk coming up, as well as relapse after two or more lines of therapy. It's also approved for patients with follicular lymphoma after two or more lines of systemic therapy. Brexicaptogene autolusal is approved for patients with relapsed or refractory mantle cell lymphoma. Lysocaptogene merilusal is approved to pay for patients with large B-cell refractory to first line or relapse within 12 months of first line. And also for those that are not eligible for stem cell transplant due to age or comorbidities. And lastly, it's approved for folks that have more than two lines of therapy. 
And then tisogen, like Lucille, is approved for patients with after two lines or more of therapy with relapsed refractory large B-cell and for patients with follicular lymphoma after two or more systemic lines of therapy. Despite lots of progress in validating the CAR T-cells, challenges and barriers do remain. As many of you are aware in the room, um, this is still a, a therapy which is not delivered to as many people as it should be. A survey was done um, of 371 community-based hematologists oncologists, um, and they talked about two of their top barriers affecting timely referral, both a slow approval process by payers and about a third of the respondees, and a slow intake process at CAR T-cell centers themselves and about a quarter of respondees. These are obviously uh, barriers for patients that have aggressive malignancies and need help quickly. Time is key, and we'll go over that in terms of why referral as early as possible is critical. Other challenges were identified in the experience of patient deteriorating prior to CAR T-cell. The use of bridging therapy will be something we'll touch on briefly in our talk today. Lack of communication from the CAR T-cell center and a smaller group of, patient, or a smaller group of respondees, as well as inability to manufacture a product, which we'll review, thankfully, is a relatively rare phenomenon uh, currently. All right, so that's our background, and we're going to dive right into the, to the uh, subject matter at hand. I am going to lead the discussion for large B-cell lymphoma, then I'll hand over to Dr. Nilapu, who will talk about MCL, and then Dr. Segal, who will talk about follicular and CLL. So we have an action-packed, uh, very detailed and data-heavy presentation today, so please do think of questions and submit them through the app uh, when, you, when they come up. All right. So that is a, a younger version of me there on the screen. Um, I'm Jason Weston, the Director for Lymphoma Clinical Research at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I'm also the Section Chief for Aggressive Lymphomas and have done a fair amount of work in the CAR T-cell space. And so I'm going to talk about changing practice and opportunities for better outcomes in DLBCL. So we'll start off with a case. This is a patient named Carol who has DLBCL NOS. Um, she's diagnosed at age 60 with stage 4 disease, an IPI of 4. She's treated with six cycles of RCHOP. Um, a PET scan at the end of therapy uh, shows she has a complete response. However, unfortunately, six months later, she has progression of disease. Her performance status is pretty good, 1 to 2, so not a major limitation there. And then the discussion comes up. What should we do for this patient? Should we proceed with autologous transplant or CAR T-cell? And the second question, what baseline factors can help guide an appropriate treatment decision? And we'll go over the data to help answer these questions. So this will be something that we'll be coming back to as we go out over the data. Okay, so how to answer this question, the first one about transplant, which has been the standard of care for a quarter century plus, versus CAR T-cell. Well, thankfully, we have data. So we have three randomized phase three studies in the same space of patients who are either refractory to or relapse within 12 months of first-line therapy. Zuma 7 looking at AxiCell, Belinda looking at Tisa cell, and Transform looking at Lysacell. All three of these trials had a primary endpoint of event-free survival and had fairly similar clinical trial designs. There are some significant differences, but in general, same patient population, CAR T-cell versus chemotransplant. Zuma 7, which was presented last year at the ASH plenary session, um, showed an incredible result with this Kaplan-Meier curve here, AxiCell dramatically better than standard of care 
with a median event-free survival of 8.3 months versus 2.0 months. This trial presented last year and then subsequently published in the New England Journal of Medicine had a median follow-up of nearly 25 months with 41% of patients in the AxiCell arm being event-free at 24 months versus only 16% on the standard of care side. The overall response rates um, and CR rates were clearly better for the AxiCell group over standard of care and the median overall survival favored AxiCell in an interim analysis. Stay tuned for the final analysis coming uh, relatively soon. Um, so based upon this, in April of this year, 2022, AxiCell was FDA approved in this patient population of refractory to first line or relapsing within 12 months of first line chemotherapy. New data presented this year at ASH looks into more characteristics of which patients on the study derive more benefit. And one of the surrogates that's been looked at in many clinical data sets has been the PET-CT scan, more specifically, better analytics of the PET-CT scan. And looking at the, the tumor volume, the, um, the metabolic tumor volume on these scans, you can characterize patients into high versus low. And so looking at the two different groups here of AxiCell and standard of care split into high versus low, you can see that AxiCell, both high and low, performed better than standard of care, high and low. So regardless of the tumor volume, patients still derive benefit from AxiCell over standard of care therapy. This is something that is um, good to see that there's not a group of patients that does not benefit from CAR T-cell or would derive more benefit from standard of care chemotherapy. It's quite disappointing to see that the high tumor volume standard of care patients did so poorly. That lowest bottom curve there is not a big surprise to many of us who've tried to give chemo to a patient with bulky and, and significant disease burden, but nonetheless, clearly a group that would derive more benefit from a CAR T-cell. And this will be presented on December 10th at 2 p.m. How about the subsequent impact on anti-lymphoma therapy? This is also a new presentation that will be uh, shared by Dr. Gobadi at this ASH meeting, Abstract 659. This is looking at patients that were randomized to the AxiCell arm or the standard of care arm, and then what treatment did they receive subsequently? On the AxiCell arm, 84 out of the 180 patients randomized, unfortunately, did require subsequent third-line therapy. Eight patients in this, this arm were treated with third-line cellular immunotherapy with a relatively modest progression-free survival of 3.5 months, so effectively retreated with cellular immunotherapy. On the standard of care arm, more patients required third-line therapy, 127 out of 179. And here, patients receiving effectively third-line CAR T-cell therapy, here called cellular immunotherapy because there's some, it wasn't a, a classic CAR T-cell, but here, the progression-free survival was 6.3 months with a median OS of 16 months. This is generally in line with what we've seen in the third-line space for CAR T-cells and was less than what we saw on the Zuma 7 AxiCell second-line arm, implying that perhaps saving a CAR T-cell for third-line may be less advantageous than using it in second-line. So these are small numbers on, on a post-hoc analysis of this randomized phase three trial, but nonetheless highly informative to try and answer the question of what if we had saved CAR-T for the third line for this population. TRANSFORM was the phase three trial evaluating lysocaptogen versus uh, standard of care chemotherapy. And here are the data presented by Dr. Kamdar and colleagues last year at the ASH meeting showing in the interim analysis at six months, a huge difference between the groups. 
10.1 months versus two months event-free survival median for lysosol favored over standard of care. There's uh, an update to this and that in June of 2022, the FDA approved lysosol in this patient population for those that were refractory to first line or relapsing within 12 months. Um, and we'll go over an additional cohort of patients that were unfit for treatment in just a moment. This is an update to the data presented this year at the ASH 2022 meeting, which is an abstract 655. Um, here we see additional follow-up, now at 17.5 months. The prior slide was only at six months follow-up. And what we're seeing here is a, is a very excellent uh, stability of these curves. We had a great um, separation of the curves in the interim analysis. Now we're seeing that this is holding up as time goes on. For the lysosol arm at 17 months, the median has not yet been reached. In the standard of care arm, it's 2.4 months, which is generally what we've seen on the prior studies for the standard of care arm. So this, this uh, shows the benefit for lysosol appears to be quite durable in this patient population. What about the role of CAR T-cell in patients not intended for transplant? As mentioned, the FDA had a second uh, a comma and then a second group in the FDA approval for lysosol. <coughs> And that's based on the pilot study, which was led by my uh, co-speaker, Dr. Sagal, uh, here up with us on the podium today. The pilot study was evaluating patients who were relatively unfit for transplant. And that was based on many different factors, effectively kind of quantifying the eyeball test of somebody that you would not feel comfortable giving high-dose chemotherapy based on organ dysfunction uh, or age. And in this trial, in this relatively unfit population, the overall response rate was 80% with the complete response rate of 54%, looking pretty similar to what we saw in the TRANSFORM study for the overall patient population, showing that CAR T-cells can be administered with no new safety signals in this relatively unfit population. And this led to the FDA allowing patients who were more than 12 months from first-line therapy but are not intended for transplant to be uh, eligible for receiving lysosol. The third study that was mentioned in the introduction to this session is the Belinda trial. This is T-cell versus standard of care in the second line refractory or early relapsing population. And unfortunately, this is not a typo. These curves do directly overlap and the median event-free survival was about three months for both groups. There were some design challenges in this clinical trial that might have influenced this, but at the end of the day, there was no improvement in event-free survival for T-cell in second line. And although the product does remain approved in the third line space, it is not approved in second line. So based upon these three randomized studies, we have proposed a new algorithm for second line therapy in large B cell lymphoma. Historically, the dogma was determining is your patient fit for transplant or ineligible for transplant. We propose that we should now change this to what is the time from first line therapy. And for patients that are within one year, we propose that CAR T-cell should be the question you're asking. Is the patient eligible for CAR, yes or no? And in the past for transplant, we always thought this was about a 50-50 split. Yes and no for eligible for transplant. Here we view this to be more likely a 70-30 split for patients eligible for CAR, yes, and 30% no, reflecting that more patients will be able to tolerate CAR T-cell than the toxic approach of platinum-based chemotherapy and autologous transplant. For those that are greater than one year, there are currently no data to support that CAR T-cell would be superior to the longstanding standard of care transplant, and therefore most patients 
will attempt an, a stem cell transplant and if successful, hopefully be cured. If not, consider a car in a third line setting. So what about moving CAR T cells up even earlier? We saw moving from third line to second line was very promising. How about moving up to the front line setting in patients with high risk disease? My co-speaker, Dr. Satvanilapu, led this trial, the Zuma 12 trial, which was published earlier this year in Nature Medicine. This trial of 40 patients included those with high-grade or, or high-risk disease who also, after two cycles of chemotherapy, had a positive PET-CT scan. And you can see that the response rate here of nearly 90% with nearly 80% complete response rate was very impressive. And we have the table here showing that the time to event analyses also looked quite favorable with a 12-month EFS rate of 72%. So this looks very promising, and I would say stay tuned for even more studies coming in the frontline space evaluating CAR T-cells, including the potential for randomized trials here. So back to our patient, the tumor board. Carol, this patient with the six months after initial therapy having relapsed disease, I'd like to turn these questions to my colleagues here on the stage. And based upon the, the trials we just uh, showed, there probably are not a lot of controversy here. But for the first question, I'd like to ask Dr. Siegel, what, what would she propose we do for this patient of transplant versus CAR T-cell? Yeah, so <clears throat> uh, based on those studies that you've shown, uh, this lady has high-risk disease. She relapsed within a year, and I think she would do well with CAR T-cell therapy. And then, thank you, I agree. And, and for the second question, Dr. Nilapu, what baseline factors might help guide an appropriate treatment decision? Yes, I think uh, so. this patient relapsed within one year of uh, primary chemoimmunotherapy uh, and the uh, phase three randomized trials done in the second line setting you know, all included patients you know, who relapsed within one year. I think that also favors giving cortisol therapy as a preferred approach. Excellent, I agree. Very good. So we agree with our expert colleagues up here that uh, given the relapse, she's a clear candidate for CAR T-cell therapy. It's supported by Zuma 7 and Transform. And then how quickly should the referral happen uh, to, to your CAR T-cell center? How about yesterday? Uh, going as fast as you can for referral is, is critical. So I'll introduce a second case. Michael, a patient with a triple hit large B-cell lymphoma. That term is likely to go away, by the way. BCL6 probably dropping out in the new WHO. So we'll call this patient triple hit, but that's a term that basically means very aggressive disease. Stage four, IPI4, no major comorbidities, and this patient is treated with R-EPOC. The patient achieves a partial response after three cycles, but clinically and radiographically starts to progress in the midst of R-EPOC. Yikes. This is a highly chemo refractory disease, and we treat this patient with a platinum second-line chemotherapy, but unfortunately the patient continues to progress and has a good performance status, no other contraindications. So what are the next steps? Directly uh, refer this patient to CAR T-cell to start the process. Um, should you have perhaps referred this patient once they showed chemo refractory disease after our EPOC? And then for bridging therapy, what to do in this space? So this is something that we have data uh, in the third line uh, for what to do for patients who are refractory to initial treatment and who are not able to get to transplant or relapse after transplant. These are the pivotal studies that led to the approval of these three products, Zuma 1, Juliet, and Transcend. And these data may be familiar to most of you, but just as a brief reminder, in the Zuma 1 trial, bridging chemotherapy was not allowed. However, it was in Juliet and Transcend. I wanted to highlight the relatively high 
percentage of patients who were aphorist and treated in these studies. All of them were above 75%, with Axicel being at 91%, and the approval dates are on the bottom of the, the slide here. So in the phase two ZIM-1 trial, led by my colleague, Dr. Nilapu, Axicel was a very powerful therapy in patients with relapsed refractory disease, who generally would have been expected to have very inferior outcomes when we reference the Scholar-1 data set. This is an update now with five years of mature data showing a pretty stable plateau with a five-year overall survival rate at 43%. So we see the, the shape of the curve changing early. Um, and then once we get past six to 12 months, there's generally a lessening of the slope of the curve and long-term for overall survival, we see excellent outcomes for patients treated now with five years follow-up. In the Juliet study, there were very impressive stability of responses in those that achieved a complete response. And now with additional follow-up, we're seeing progression-free survival rates that are not changing very much out between month 24 and month 36, 33 and 31 percent. Um, and we're showing in real-world data sets that I'll go through in just a few moments, additional stable disease uh, or stable findings on a plateau of the Kaplan-Meier curves uh, long-term after tisagen like Lucil. And then the Transcend study also had an update for their data set showing that uh, with longer follow-up, same story. So we're seeing a real trend here with much more mature data than we originally had in the pivotal trials, showing that those patients who achieve uh, a benefit clinically from CAR T-cell, uh, in my opinion, can be cured uh, with these approaches. Uh, in the Lysacel update, uh, the two-year PFS and OS were 49.5 and 40.6%, um, but that plateau is what I would highlight. So how about outside of clinical trials? What about for patients that receive standard of care? The left-hand side of your screen shows two data sets from many different centers collaborating to put their data together, and I would basically say show the same findings, that the data outside of clinical trials largely mirrors what we just showed on the follow-up from Zuma 1. Effectively, patients don't need to be Olympic athletes to get into a clinical trial to derive benefit. Patients who are unfit for getting on a clinical trial still can get great benefit um, in a standard of care setting. And then on the right-hand side, same story for Tisagen like Lucil, where we're seeing in uh, real-world data sets results that largely mirror what we saw in the clinical trial, including some patients here who were not uh, potentially eligible for the study due to some medical comorbidities. What about in patients who are older? This is an update presented by Dr. Matt Lunning at the ASH 2022 meeting in Abstract 765. Here what we see in a large uh, analysis uh, of more than 1,000 patients, the take-home here is that age of 65 less or greater than had very similar outcomes. Perhaps numerically even a little bit higher response rates in those over age 65, although not, not necessarily reaching uh, significance, but nonetheless, there's not a loss of signal. And, and that goes back to this question about, is my patient eligible for CAR T-cell? There's not an age cutoff for CAR T-cells in the way that sometimes in transplant, we thought perhaps there might be an age or a physiologic cutoff. Uh, we at MD Anderson, I believe the oldest person we've treated, Sapa, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think was 91 years young, uh, quite fit, not, not a typical 91-year-old, um, uh, but nonetheless, there's not an age cutoff for CAR T-cells. Recent real-world outcomes point to a growing experience with clinical benefit, and this is a lot of data compressed into one slide, but the references are down there at the bottom. 
The Zuma one eligible versus ineligible analysis in the first category here showed that those that were ineligible for the clinical trial due to cytopenias, due to medical comorbidities, still derive great benefit um, and should be considered for CAR T-cell even if they wouldn't have met criteria for the study. In the UK, more than 400 patients were evaluated both receiving AxiCell and TSA-cell and showed that there was in their cohort a difference numerically for the 12-month progression-free survival, nearly 42%, versus 27% at 12 months. In the German cohort, um, they looked at patients that had um, many different factors and found that there was really not a group that should not get CAR T-cells, um, that the, uh, patients with high LDH and other baseline factors still could derive benefit here. Um, and then lastly, in the French group, looking at nearly 800 patients, just published a few months ago in Nature Medicine, found that there was... Um, uh, differences in toxicity and in efficacy between the axicel and the T-cell in this real-world cohort. Back to the beginning where we talked about barriers to deliver care, this is something that is often uh, a reason patients are not referred to a CAR T-cell center uh, or even considered for CAR T-cell, but in our uh, arguments, they should not be barriers. Patients should still come. Disease progression is often something that people are quite concerned about, that these are often folks that need therapy very soon, and it's difficult to bridge somebody or to keep the disease under control while getting to a CAR T-cell center. Obviously, infections, um, especially after lymphodepleting chemotherapy, including fludarabine, are a concern. Manufacturing failure, so a patient has an apheresis that's sent off to make T-cells and is unable to receive the product due to manufacturing challenges. Um, and then lastly, socioeconomic barriers. CAR T-cells require a patient to be treated at a CAR T-cell center, and often that may be a drive or, or a flight away for a patient, and patients are required to effectively stay at the CAR T-cell center for more than a month, and for some of our patients, that is too much to ask for, either logistically or financially, for them to make this work. So additional strategies are certainly needed to help continue to overcome some of these barriers. Many of these, though, timing is a way to get around this and referral to a CAR T-cell center at the time you're considering what treatment to give for a patient with relapse or refractory disease, that first thought should be, I think I should refer this patient for an evaluation at a CAR T-cell center. So back to our patient who was refractory to our EPOC and refractory to our DAP, the next steps here really aren't worth uh, debating and we won't, won't debate should we refer this patient for CAR T-cells because clearly this patient is chemorefractory and has a, a very poor outcome if we continue with additional chemo in somebody who's now had a progression and been failed by two very intensive regimens of our EPOC and our, our DAP. But I will bring this to my colleagues here on the stage about bridging therapy for this particular patient. This patient is uh, refractory and progressing after our DAP. So in general, Dr. Nilapu, how do you view bridging therapy for such a patient in terms of what choices may influence your treatment decision? Yes, I think uh, there are a number of factors to consider when um, thinking about bridging therapy while the CAR-T product is being manufactured. If the patient has uh, rapidly progressive disease, um, uh, the most common bridging therapy that we use currently is rituximab in combination with polituzumab. Uh, we usually don't uh, include bendamustine in that setting because if you look at the data, uh, 
the, the most active agent in the polar BR combination is actually polartuzumab, a single agent. Uh, the response rate is about 55%. Um, so I think bendamustine probably acts, adds more toxicity uh, without additional benefit. And we found this to be fairly adequate in most patients. Occasionally, we may have to use uh, chemotherapy-based bridging um, in patients who have uh, very, very aggressive disease, some, someone behaving like a Burkitt lymphoma. Um, in that setting, we commonly use hyperfractionated cyclophosphamide with, in combination with rituximab, but without the doxorubicin. Uh, we generally try to avoid tefacitumab uh, as a bridging therapy uh, because of the potential uh, risk of uh, masking the epitope uh, and um, uh, giving it so close to the CAR T-cell therapy since both of them target CD19 uh, molecule. If patients don't have uh, very aggressive disease and, and minimally symptomatic, you could just consider something like pulse dexamethasone. Uh, but uh, if you look at the real-world data, about, only about half the patients need bridging therapy. Uh, remaining 50% can just be observed while the CAR-T product is being manufactured. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Nilpu. In, in the Zuma 7 and the Zuma 1 trials, as mentioned, CAR uh, chemotherapy was not allowed. But in real world, many patients do get chemo um, as a potential strategy. And, and I echo everything Dr. Nilapu said about uh, polituzumab without the bendamustine frequently being something that we would give in that space. Um, and, and really lacking data on tafacitumab, having the co-targeting of CD19, if there are other options, may influence your decision. I think that this patient definitely needed to be referred as early as possible, and you could argue if this, if this happened prior to the, the approvals earlier this year, everything here is per standard of care, but if this happened today, post-approval in second line, you could argue that this patient was refractory to our EPOC and could have been considered for referral at that time point, and now this patient is highly likely to require bridging chemotherapy or bridging treatments, which we know are associated with inferior outcomes in many of the real-world analyses, uh, probably due to the reasons for getting bridging therapy more than the actual bridging therapy itself. But nonetheless, this patient is now at higher risk uh, due to the um, additional therapies they've received and perhaps may not have as good of an outcome with their T-cells being further beat up by more chemotherapy. So referral early, including after first-line therapy, is key. And then lastly, I'd say fitness is difficult to assess. Don't exclude patients prematurely. As mentioned before, very elderly patients sometimes can be eligible for CAR T-cell. The pilot study suggested that as well. So it's difficult to know, is my patient eligible, yes or no, for CAR T-cells? It's better to be uh, referred for a CAR T-cell and, and told for various reasons that may not be the best option versus prejudging or assuming the patient may not derive benefit with all of the real-world analyses showing similar findings that different prognostic factors still can be overcome and patients that are relatively unfit still can benefit from CAR T-cells. So what if the patient receives CAR T-cells and experiences toxicity? So this same patient that was refractory to EPOC and to DAP is referred to a CAR T-cell center and now receives a anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. The patient develops toxicity, grade two cytokine release syndrome with uh, fever and fluid responsive hypotension on day five. What are the recommendations for treating early CRS? There's many different options here and we'll go through some of the upcoming slides, but I would briefly want to highlight for those in the audience here in person and virtually that MD Anderson developed an uh, iPhone or an Android app that can be downloaded for free. Uh, it's called the CarTox app. 
and it allows you to grade your patient based on their clinical parameters and gives advice on toxicity management based upon the different grades or what you put in for your patient. This is something that I'd encourage for those in the audience to get your phone out and download this now um, as something that would be a good reference if you get called in the middle of the night about how to manage your patient. I use it. So, overview of CRS and neurologic events with CAR T-cell therapy. I like this cartoon on the left-hand side because it shows clearly the timing for the CAR T-cell expansion. That's the solid line on the graph. After infusion, there's a rapid expansion of cells that then begin to come back down and the timing of onset most typically for toxicities. CRS often occurs early with a median onset around day two. Neurologic events or ICANs often occur a few days later and generally resolve within the coming week or two weeks afterwards. So that first 28 days is often when there's action. CRS for those that use CAR T cells is a known event. For those that have not ever seen this, it's pretty well defined here on these tables looking a little bit like a sepsis-like phenomenon. ICANS is a relatively unique toxicity that uh, has some distinct features um, which can be not too subtle when your patient is no longer speaking or is having significant agitation uh, and quite disturbing to the patients if not described well as a risk ahead of time. So I'm not gonna go through a complete management strategy but these slides nonetheless describe the different CRS um, ratings uh, based upon the ASTCT criteria and the escalation of, of management of starting off with observation for grade one CRS if it's transient or using tocilizumab, all the way up to using high-dose methylprednisolone for, for life-threatening CRS to try and slow down the expansion and cytokine production by the T-cells. For neurotoxicity or ICANS, same story, that for grade one, no treatment may be indicated, observation, which may resolve without further escalation. However, if a patient does progress to having more significant ICANS, uh, aggressive management with high-dose steroids and likely an ICU stay would be required. What about next therapies for CAR T-cells? We'll see at this ASH meeting this year an update from the YTB323, a rapcaptogene autolucil product, which is uh, manufactured rapidly through the so-called T-charge platform. Uh, this produces a CAR T-cell in two days of a manufacturing time, which may have an impact on the T-cell fitness or stemness of the T-cells. Uh, the CR rate in this abstract 439 uh, was impressive at dose level two of 65%. Um, and something that we'll expect to see more of in the coming years. And for some take-home thoughts, for large B-cell lymphoma, CAR T-cells have dramatically reshaped the treatment landscape for our patients with relapse and refractory disease. <clears throat> CAR T-cells, in my opinion, are now the standard of care option for patients with early or refractory uh, disease in the second line. Early referral to a CAR T-cell center is essential as delays can occur once the patient hits the door, and the patient may deteriorate or require intensive therapies with toxicities if delays occur. And then toxicities for CAR T-cell therapy are relatively unique and require special, uh, specialized stepwise care management. That CARTOX app is a good way to kind of have a quick cheat sheet in your pocket of how to grade and manage that. And with that, I will now hand it over to my colleague, Dr. Safanilpu, to tell us about mantle cell lymphoma. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Um, I'd like to thank the organizers for the invitation. So over the next uh, 15 to 20 minutes, I'll discuss about the role of cortisol therapy in mantle cell lymphoma. 
All right, so we're going to start with the case. Um, uh, this is a 65-year-old male uh, with uh, elapsed mantle cell lymphoma. At the time of initial presentation, he had uh, presented with uh, weight loss and fatigue and had lymphadenopathy and splenomegaly. And perhaps he showed blastoid variant of mantle cell lymphoma with the TP53 mutation and a high K67 of 80%. So clearly, multiple high-risk features. So he was started on treatment with uh, benamustine and rituximab, and after three cycles, the PET scan showed stable disease. Um, uh, at that point, he was switched to rituximab with cytarabine, and uh, after three cycles of this, the PET scan again showed stable disease, and then he was, his treatment was changed to BTK inhibitor, a calibrator name. And unfortunately, he developed progressive disease uh, with the BTK inhibitor. So I'd like to discuss uh, in the next few slides uh, the role of can CAR T-cell therapy be considered here in this uh, patient and how soon can one consider CAR T-cell therapy in mantle cell lymphoma? What are the expected outcomes post uh, BTK inhibitor in, in mantle cell lymphoma? And uh, what does the real-world data show uh, with CAR T-cell therapy in mantle cell lymphoma? Uh, so this is a study here from the uh, UK group uh, where um, they looked at outcomes in patients with uh, about 100 mantle cell lymphoma patients relapsing after covalent BTK inhibitor therapy. And covalent BTK inhibitors, as you know, are um, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zanubrutinib. Uh, and what this um, data shows is that the overall survival is pretty dismal in this patients relapsing after BTK inhibitor therapy with a median overall survival of only 1.4 months. Uh, if the patient did not receive any further systemic therapy, near the median overall survival is, was only 0.4 months. And if they received systemic therapy, this was about uh, 12 months. And uh, depending on the type of systemic therapy they received, if they received or back, uh, chemotherapy following BTK inhibitor uh, progression, or back being rituximab in combination with bendamustine and cytarabine, you can see the median survival is uh, about 14 months, but with alternative systemic therapies, the median survival is only about four months, suggesting that there's a major unmet need for these patients relapsing after um, uh, BTK inhibitors. So in this context, the ZUMA-2 study was performed. So this is a yeah, phase two multicenter single arm trial evaluating brexacaptogen or telucil or brexacel in short in relapsed refractive mantle cell lymphoma. Um, so all patients treated on this, uh, enrolled on this study uh, received prior BTK inhibitor therapy and they, uh, there were a total of 74 patients uh, enrolled. To be eligible, the patients had to have at least one to five prior lines of therapy and should have had received uh, prior rituximab uh, as well as alkylating agents besides the BTK inhibitor. And following uh, leukopheresis, they could receive optional bridging therapy, which may include either corticosteroids or BTK inhibitors. And once the product has been generated, they receive conditioning chemotherapy with cyclophosphamide and fludarabine, followed by a single uh, dose of uh, Brexacel at a dose of 2 million corpostal cells per kilogram body weight. And the first tumor assessment was done at day 28. The primary endpoint uh, for this study was objective response rate, as assessed by independent radiological review. And as you will see, here, based on the data from this trial, Brexacel was FDA approved for relapsed refractive mantle cell lymphoma after one line of therapy in July of 2020. And here are the uh, results 
presented from the Zuma 2 that was published earlier this year in JCO oh, after median follow-up of almost three years. Um, the best objective response rate was 91% and the CR rate was 68%. And the data cut off, 37% um, of the patients had ongoing responses. The median duration of response was 28 months, the median PFS, 26 months, and the median overall survival, almost four years. Now, on the left here, you can see the PFS. On the right is the overall survival. And now you can see that patients who achieve a CR have a much better PFS with a median of almost four years. But patients who have a PR or non-responders progress rapidly with a median of uh, two to three months. And following the approval of this Prexocell, there was also real-world data that was uh, captured and uh, presented last year at ASH, both from the U.S. as well as a you know, French group. And this real-world data uh, showed that the outcomes in the real-world setting were quite similar uh, to what's been reported in this pivotal Zuma 2 trial, despite the fact that a majority of the patients would not have been eligible for Zuma 2 for various reasons. So at ASH this year, further analysis on the Zuma 2 is being presented, and they looked at factors that were associated with ongoing responses. And what they found was that patients who had lower ECOG score of zero, a lower tumor burden at the time of enrollment, um, uh, patients who did not need to get bridging therapy or who received less intense regimens from previous therapies all had a um, better chance of achieving an ongoing response at three years. Um, so together these results suggest that the, there's a potential for greater benefit with Brexosol if given in earlier course of disease. Now, if you look at the NCCN guidelines, um, uh, the recommendation for CAR T-cell therapy is uh, given as third-line therapy, usually after chemoimmunotherapy and PTK inhibitor therapy. Uh, the preferred second-line approach uh, is usually covalent BDK inhibitors, or either acalibrutinib, ibrutinib with or without rituximab, or zanibrutinib, um, and for subsequent therapy, subsequent lines, even lenalidomide and rituximab. And second-line consolidation with allogenic stem cell transplantation could be considered in select patients. Now, at ASH this year, there's also data being presented looking at outcomes between Zuma 2 and comparing it with outcomes from the standard of care setting as reported in the SCHOLAR 2 study, which looked at outcomes in patients with relapsed refractive mantle cell lymphoma after prior covalent BTK inhibitor therapy. At baseline, uh, on the Zuma 2 study, these patients appear to be more heavily pretreated, with more number of patients receiving three to four lines of therapy as compared to the standard of care setting. But following um, adjustment of these imbalances through various statistical methods, they still found that uh, on the Zuma 2, there's significant improvement in overall survival as compared to the standard of care setting, either in the weighted or unweighted uh, analysis comparison, suggesting that Brexosol pro provides significant benefit for these patients who have a high unmet need following BTK inhibitor relapse. Now, on the Zuma 2 study, there was also analysis that was done to look at the impact of prior exposure to bendamustine, since bendamustine is commonly used as one of the first-line therapy options in mantle cell lymphoma. So if the patient had prior bendamustine exposure within six months of aphorosis on the study, these patients um, had a lower 
chance of achieving a CR rate. You can see 55% versus patients who never were exposed to benamustine exposure. And this was based on a propensity score matching analysis. And a lower chance of ongoing response rate at 18% versus 36%. And this uh, associated with a lower peak CAR T-cell expansion in these patients who had prior bendamustine exposure, lower CAR AUC levels, and a longer doubling time during the manufacturing process, suggesting their T-cells were proliferating slower, all pointing to the fact that bendamustine could potentially impact uh, T-cell functionality. In addition, uh, bendamustine, uh, patients who got exposed to bendamustine also had a lower peak uh, interferon gamma and GRANZ-MB levels post CAR T-cell therapy. Now, on Zumatube, they also looked at outcomes in patients who had bendamustine exposure greater than six months pre-aferosis. And here again, upon propensity score analysis, again, they find that the CR rates and ongoing response rates are better compared to those who had exposure within six months, but still appear to be slightly lower than patients who never had bendamustine exposure. And similarly, the peak cortisol expansion core AUC doubling time were also inferior, but still better than those who had exposure within uh, six months. And, so, and this is also true for the peak interferon gamma and the peak uh, Granzambi levels in the serum of these patients. So attached this year, there's also no real-world evidence being presented with Brexacel in relapsed refractive mental cell lymphoma. Two studies, one from the European group from 11 different European sites. Um, uh, this is based on 33 patients uh, who were treated on the uh, expanded access program uh, uh, at these sites. And you can see that the CR rates and the safety profile is quite similar to what's been reported on the Zuma 2 with a CR rate of 79% and the great uh, and the CR as a neurological event rate very similar to uh, the Zuma 2. And similarly, the six-month PFS and the 12-month PFS rates were also comparable to Zuma 2. There's also real-world data being presented from the UK study from over 80 patients. Um, and here again, we see that the overall response rate is close to 90%, the CR rate of 83%, and the median uh, PFS and the six-month uh, and 12-month PFS rates were similar to uh, Zuma 2. And the greatly higher CRS events were 12%, and the greatly higher ICANs were 24%, again, uh, uh, matching Zuma 2 data. Now, lysosel is also being evaluated in relapsed refractive mantle cell lymphoma. Now, this is a separate cohort on the transcend study, which you heard from my colleague, uh, Jason. Uh, to be eligible, these patients had to have, uh, should have received at least two or more prior lines of therapy, um, should have received prior uh, BDK inhibitor, alkylating agent, and anti-CD20 antibody. Um, patients who had prior auto or allogenic stem cell transplantation or secondary CNS lymphoma you know, are allowed on the study. In addition, this, patient, uh, this trial also allowed patients with ECOG performance status of two or less and, um, you know, and creatinine clearance of 30 or more and LV, you know, left ventricular ejection fraction of 40% or more. And following enrollment and leukophoresis, these patients could receive bridging therapy, but a PET-positive disease had to be reconfirmed before they can you know, proceed with therapy with cyflu, lymphodepletion, uh, followed by lysosel infusion. And they evaluated two dose levels, uh, 50 million core positive cells and 100 million core positive cells. Um, at the time of this presentation uh, last year, uh, uh, sorry, two years ago at ASH, there were a total of 32 patients uh, treated. 
and the primary endpoint was uh, to assess the safety and dose-limiting toxicity on the phase one portion of the study, and, uh, um, and the primary endpoint was overall response rate on the phase two portion of the trial. So uh, the best overall response rate was quite remarkable at uh, 84%, and the CR rate was 66%. Um, the follow-up was short at uh, median follow-up of only about four months, and the median duration of response had not been reached at the time this was presented two years ago. Um, any grade CRS was observed in 50% of the patients. Grade 3 or higher CRS was only seen in 3% of the patients, so fairly well tolerated. Uh, about a third of the patients had neurological events uh, with grade 3 or higher uh, toxicity being seen in 13% of these patients, and the ICU admission rate was 9%. So coming back to our case, um, the 65-year-old male uh, who relapsed with um, blastoid variant mantle cell lymphoma, very high K67, um, and uh, uh, failed now three lines of therapy, bendamustine, rituximab, rituximab with cytarabine, and uh, BTK inhibitor. Uh, should CAR T-cell therapy be considered uh, in this patient? and um, how early can this be considered? So uh, maybe I'll ask uh, uh, my colleague Jason to comment on it. Yeah, I think that um, this patient clearly has high-risk disease and has had uh, a poor outcome thus far. The blastoid mantle cell and the TP53 both are very concerning features. In terms of should it be considered earlier, um, we have run into some challenges with payers um, uh, allowing CAR T-cell to be considered if somebody's not had a BTK inhibitor. Um, but, but nonetheless, I think this patient is, a, is an excellent candidate for CAR T-cells at this point. Thank you. Alison, what do you think about um, what's your preferred approach for post-BTK inhibitor therapy? And uh, any comments about the real-world data so far on, in mantle cell lymphoma? Yeah, I would I would echo the same thing that, that Jason said, that this person seems very appropriate for CAR T-cell therapy now. It, it, the data you showed um, suggests a relatively poor outcome for people that are uh, relapsing or with refractory disease in the post-BTK inhibitor. Okay, thank you. So, um, so as, as per the indication, you know, Brexacel is uh, approved, uh, as we heard, you know, approved option for relapsed refractive mantle cell lymphoma and shows very good efficacy in the post-BTK inhibitor uh, patients. Uh, should CAR T-cell therapy be considered earlier? Um, as I mentioned, um, uh, the FDA indication is that uh, Brexacel can be considered as early as uh, post-one line of therapy, um, uh, but uh, the NCCN recommendations generally recommend after the third line uh, because of the fact that uh, patients initially receive chemoimmunotherapy and BTK inhibitor is second line, but uh, with the recent uh, data emerging where BTK inhibitor is uh, moving to, early, uh, to first line, in combination with chemoimmunotherapy, I think uh, you know, the field might uh, change. Um, you know, we, we might be using cortisol therapy in the, in the second-line setting more often. And there are other uh, agents that are currently being developed uh, in this space, uh, including non-covalent uh, BTK inhibitors, as well as CD3, CD20 bispecifics, which also seem to have some promising data and may soon become available for these patients. So, so this patient went on to receive uh, anti-CD19 cortisol therapy and then developed grade 1 CRS um, uh, with fever on day 3, uh, which was managed symptomatically. And on day 5, this patient uh, developed uh, grade 2 CRS with fever and hypotension. 
and you know, which responded to fluid boluses, but because this patient was uh, 65 years old um, and uh, for grade 2 CRS, we generally also gave a dose of tocilizumab and dexamethasone, and this, uh, and this uh, resulted in resolution of the CRS. Um, uh, on day seven, this patient developed grade one neurological toxicity with mild confusion, inattention, and aphasia, and underwent a neurological workup mainly to rule out other causes along with the head CT as well as EEG monitoring, uh, which did not show any significant findings. Um, so with, um, uh, with, uh, with supportive care, this uh, resolved, and the patient uh, was discharged home on day nine. All right, so to summarize the take-home thoughts uh, on CAR T-cell therapy in mantle cell lymphoma, uh, uh, Brexacel uh, is the only approved CD19 CAR T-cell therapy here at this point in, for mantle cell lymphoma. It induces very high overall response rate and CR rate in relapsed refractive mantle cell lymphoma, and emerging data indicates this is also true with Lysosel. Um, with Brexacel, we are seeing 37% of the patients have ongoing response uh, at three years. However, I think uh, unlike what we saw in the large cell lymphoma talk, um, you know, uh, longer follow-up is probably needed to determine whether CD19 CAR T-cell therapy is curative in mantle cell lymphoma. As I assured you, no exposure to bendamustine within six months of apheresis could significantly <coughs> impact T-cell functionality, and therefore sure, one should you know, try to avoid this, and um, uh, it could also impact uh, efficacy of Brexacel. Uh, although Brexacel is approved uh, post one line of therapy, it is generally used prior to, no, after prior chemoimmunotherapy and BTK inhibitor therapy in the real-world setting. And as compared to historical data in the SCOLA-2 study, Brexacel appears to significantly improve overall survival for relapsed or refractive mantle cell lymphoma. So with that, I'll stop and turn it over to my colleague, uh, Dr. Siegel. Hi, I'm Allison Sagel, um, coming here from the University of Pittsburgh, and today I'm going to talk to you about uh, the role of CAR T-cell in uh, follicular lymphoma and also the expansion into CLL. So we'll start with follicular lymphoma, and like, uh, like Dr. Nilapu and Weston, we'll, we'll start with a uh, patient example. Uh, so this patient... Uh, we'll call him Max, uh, is say, in his 50s, and he presents with stage four follicular lymphoma. He has a very reasonable uh, performance status, a very traditional follicular lymphoma, and he, um, presumably because of um, symptomatic or bulky disease, uh, is treated first line with chemoimmunotherapy. Uh, most would probably treat with bendamustine rituximab. Unfortunately, or while he does achieve a remission, unfortunately he relapses relatively early, within 24 months. He's then treated with uh, Revlimid and Rituximab, we'll call this R-squared, and he does achieve another remission. Uh, this requires continuous therapy and, and sort of um, not unusually uh, develops some low-grade neutropenia managed with Neupogen or GCSF, and... Um, uh, does that for a while, but then unfortunately has another relapse. Uh, so the questions that we'll try to focus on throughout the presentation for discussion is, is this patient at risk for poor outcomes? What are some factors that make him at risk? Is CAR T-cell therapy an option at this point in time? And then sort of uh, what, what else could we consider? 
uh, for treatment. So let's start off talking about factors um, in follicular lymphoma that have um, an association with a worse prognosis. So although we often think of follicular lymphoma as a disease that is relatively easy to manage with long remissions, um, I think this is actually um, true mainly for people in an earlier phase of their disease. Uh, so we can see that here um, in this uh, in these curves, uh, which were built from a database of over 350 patients, that with each line of therapy, we see shortening of remission. So um, if we look here at this four-year time point, uh, we can see that in people in their first line of treatment, about 70% are still in remission, as compared to second and third line, where 40 and approximately 30% of people are in remission. So we see a diminishing returns out of each line of chemotherapy. And this also translates to a decrease in overall survival. So survival in the, after the first line of treatment is very similar to age match controls um, without lymphoma, but unfortunately sec requirements for second and third line therapy does shorten survival in follicular lymphoma. Uh, another important prognostic uh, factor in follicular lymphoma is something we unfortunately don't know until uh, we have given our first line of chemoimmunotherapy. So while most people after their first line of therapy will have a, a relatively long remission, that's about 80% of the population of uh, follicular uh, lymphoma patients, 20% uh, will unfortunately progress early. We call this POD24, so progression of disease within 24 months. And um, these folks have, an, unfortunately, a less favorable overall survival. It is worth noting that part of this is due to uh, presentation with aggressive transformation at relapse, although certainly not all patients have, um, have undergone transformation with an early relapse. Uh, so... <clears throat> this is the data that shows that early relapse is a poor prognostic factor. This comes from a, um, a data set of over 5,000 patients with follicular lymphoma. And in those people in the orange curve, you can see that their, their survival is um, relatively good. Um, when they progress late. However, people that have this early progression seen here in the blue curve have a significantly decreased overall survival in comparison. So uh, thinking back to our patient who has, unfortunately, early progression of disease as well as um, multiple lines of therapy, what, what would our options be for third-line therapy? And we looked to the NCCN guidelines for some um, categories of agents that we can use. We have PI3 kinase inhibitors, specifically copanlisib, um, which is an option. However, we know that uh, many patients do have trouble tolerating this agent, and the remission duration tends to not be um, very long. Additionally, we now have an EZH2 inhibitor that can be used. This was approved um, relatively recently. Uh, responses do seem to be enriched in those with EZH2 uh, mutations. However, there are responders that have wild-type EZH2, um, but unfortunately, the duration of remission tends to be less than a year for both groups. Finally, we come to our anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapy, and we have two approved agents, both Axacel and Tisacel, that we'll discuss now. So here is the Zuma5 data. Um, this is the trial that studied patients with relapsed and refractory uh, indolent lymphomas, and we'll focus on follicular lymphoma, but it did include mantle cell as well. Uh, this data was published earlier this year by Dr. Jacobson and colleagues, and 
Um, the response rate, I, I don't believe is listed here, but was quite high, the overall response rate over 90%, with CR rates of approximately 75%. And here you see that the durability of response was, was quite good with um, all patients shown here in green, but focusing on follicular lymphoma here in blue, we can see an excellent durability of response. Um, at the um, primary analysis, the median follow-up was 17.5 months, and the median duration of response wasn't reached at that point in patients with indolent lymphomas. Um, for follicular lymphoma, 64% of patients had an ongoing response at the time of the data cut. Um, here we see the progression-free survival and overall survival curves um, in both follicular lymphoma patients and those with um, marginal zone lymphoma. I'm sorry if I said mantle earlier, marginal zone lymphoma. Um, and at the primary analysis, the median follow-up of 17.5 months, we saw that neither the progression, median progression-free survival or overall survival were reached. And um, specifically, the 12-month progression-free survival was 73% for all patients. The 12-month overall survival was 92.9% in all patients. The, the safety profile was quite manageable and actually favorable as compared to large-cell lymphoma. Um, we did see this data updated last year at ASH, and um, with a median follow-up of 30.9 months, the estimated progression-free survival was reached, and it was nearly 40 months. Um, and this led to FDA approval um, for AXSL for relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. Uh, Dr. Nilapu will be updating us later uh, this ASH session. Um, I believe at the poster session on Monday, we now have uh, patients at their three-year follow-up um, time point. And, and as you can see here, the durability of response, as well as the progression-free survival and overall survival, remain quite good. Um, specifically, um, we can see that late progression or death due to lymphoma or the study treatments were very uncommon um, after after three years, and um, specifically, there were no new safety signals as compared to the two-year data. We talked about how progression of disease within 24 months is a risk factor um, in people with follicular lymphoma, and here I wanted to highlight that despite this being um, a high-risk subgroup, we still see excellent responses with AXACEL. This is a subgroup analysis um, focusing on 18-month estimated PFS, and in those with progression of disease within 24 months from chemoimmunotherapy, we still see the 18-month progression-free survival is 55%. Of course, this is less than the 84% that we see in those without POD 24. Um, so I think we've shown that the, the data for AXACEL is quite good in relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, but it's nice to put this in context with other options. Um, and so here we have a, this will be presented actually at ASH again um, later, later this session, um, but this is a comparison of the Zuma 5 patients with um, matched um, by propensity score patients from the Zuma, or from the um, Scholar 5 uh, data set. I think it comes from about seven institutions, five countries. Um, so a really robust data set that is, again, is matched um, to our Zuma 5 patients. And um, as you can see here, the AXACEL um, had excellent outcomes, and it does seem superior to those um, matched patients in the, the Scholar 5 data set, which is shown in the um, orange curve here compared to the blue um, with Zuma does also translate as a um, overall survival as well. Uh, so 
that was the focus was on AxisL for that first session, but we now have um, a second uh, CAR T-cell approved in follicular lymphoma, relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, based on the ELARA trial. Uh, so this is a study similar to Zuma-5, relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma patients, and uh, it was, we were studying TISA cell in this trial. You can see the overall response rate was, again, quite good at 86%. CR rates also excellent at 69%. And the durability of response was also very good, not reached at this first uh, primary analysis. Um, the probability for a responding patient to remain in response at six months was 79%. Um, um, and the, the safety profile was also quite good with, with this study. Um, this led to FDA approval in May of 22. Uh, we, um, ha it, when we look at longer follow-up, um, this is published data from Dr. Fowler um, earlier this year. We see that the 12-month progression-free survival is 67%, looking at some high-risk groups like progression of disease um, within 24 months, as well as high tumor volume in multiple lines of therapy. We do see continued benefit in all of these, um, these high-risk subgroups, although it's somewhat reduced. Uh, we see this uh, data updated at, at this ASH session, um, and the long-term data continues to show um, excellent durability of response now over two years from infusion. Um, at the um, oral abstract session, there'll be some discussion of correlative analyses, looking at high-risk groups, as well as T-cell subsets and cytokine um, profiles that may be associated with decreased um, responses and long-term outcomes. So to go back to our patient who had um, these, these risk factors um, and is now in need of a third-line therapy, um, I think the data is, is relatively clear, but I will ask my colleagues, maybe let's start with Dr. Um, Weston, you know, would you consider this patient at high risk for poor outcomes? Thank you, Dr. Segal. I think that the uh, POD24 group is clearly the, sort of the uh, most key feature here that this patient has had an early progression after chemotherapy. Um, sometimes patients don't receive chemotherapy in frontline, um, but this patient did and then relapsed quickly thereafterwards. And so I think this patient clearly has risk of dying of their follicular lymphoma. I agree. Um, and then, Dr. Nilapu, would you consider CAR T-cell an option at this point? And if not, sort of would you consider a different, different therapy? Yes, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, before CAR T-cell therapy became available, you know, this is a type of patient where we probably would have given our chart, but um, you know, this patient being a POD24 and uh, their uh, survival is, uh, is significantly diminished, um, I think CAR T is quite appropriate for this patient. Um, exactly. This, this data is quite clear that CAR T-cell is appropriate in this third-line setting, um, showing really robust responses that are quite durable, both with AXA-cell and TISA-cell, and that patients that have progression of disease within 24 months, it's a high-risk group, but they actually um, still have a significant benefit to CAR T-cell therapies. 
So while we, we don't have any FDA approvals in CLL, we do now have published data on some clinical trials that have been done in CLL that I think are very promising, specifically the data from the Transcend study. Uh, so this is a trial that is um, similar to others that we've seen. Uh, patients with relapsed refractory CLL were enrolled. Um, and the eligibility... Uh, it's worth noting that they had failed or were ineligible for BTK inhibitors. Um, for patients that had high-risk disease, um, complex karyotypes or, or TP53 mutations, um, they uh, had to fail only two prior lines of therapy. Standard risk patients could be enrolled if they had received three prior lines of therapy and their performance status had to be reasonable. So patients were enrolled, received standard lymphodepleting chemotherapy after cell um, processing, and then received lysosal two to seven days afterwards. Two dose, this was a phase one, two trial, a dose finding study. Um, two, two different doses were, were studied. Um, and what we see here were, um, to begin with, very good responses. Uh, the overall response rate uh, was 82%. We saw CR, uh, high CR rate of uh, 45% in the total group. It didn't differ significantly between dose levels. And we see that these CRs were, were very durable here. Um, we're looking at two... Um, two cohorts. So in purple, we see the whole cohort, and the median duration of response was not reached. Um, similarly, progression, in progression-free survival, it was quite good. The median was 18 months. Um, however, I wanted to draw your attention to the other sub, the subgroup that was um, patients that had failed both BTK inhibitors, which was a um, part of the eligibility, but also had failed venetoclax, and that was a um, I think there were eight patients in that subgroup, and we can see that high-risk subgroup did quite well, um, similar to the, to the total group. Um, so that is, is very early data published um, earlier this year by Dr. Siddiqui, and we look forward to additional analyses and long-term follow-up of those groups, as well as the expansion cohort. Um, so we know that from that data, CLL can be treated with lysosel, but many patients with CLL um, that have a poor prognosis actually relapse with Richter's syndrome. Could XSL be useful in that setting? Um, and while we do not have robust data, here is a small study of, um, I believe, nine patients um, with relatively short follow-up of six months, we did see that these patients had a very good CR rate. So all patients that had some response and five had a complete response. Um, one patient did subsequently progress, but the others had remained in remission um, at follow-up. And so we look forward to more, more data in the setting of Richter's transformation for CLL. So based on some early... Um, uh, preclinical and early clinical data, uh, there is interest in how patients will respond with concurrent ibrutinib during collection of CAR T-cells and perhaps during treatment um, with, the, with CAR T-cell therapy. This was a small study that looked at some T-cell dynamics shown here, but also what they found was that the CRS um, was not enhanced by concurrent ibrutinib. So that led to a, a clinical trial that was um, discussed last year of lysosel with concurrent abrutinib, um, sort of part of the Transcend study uh, that I showed earlier as a single agent. And so in this trial, um, the 
uh, overall response rate was, again, quite good. Uh, you can see here that most patients responded over 90%, and the CR rate was 59% in all patients. It did not differ significantly by dose levels. Um, although not shown here, the duration of response appears good, although the follow-up is relatively short. At six months, um, uh, 16 of the 18 patients that were responding were still in remission. And then, interestingly, these responses appear to be very deep. Um, these are undetectable uh, MRD data in the second, in the second um, graph here, and you can see most patients achieved um, uh, undetectable MRD. Um, and so that is the data for Lysacel. Again, we look forward to long-term follow-up and additional presentation of this encouraging data. Um, this, this is data from uh, Zuma 8. I'm looking at KTEX 19 uh, in, in CLL, uh, patients that were heavily pretreated. This is going to be presented at ASH this year. Um, <clears throat> This was, um, again, a relatively small group, and unfortunately, we did not see high CR rates, although the one group that did seem to benefit is this cohort three. There were three patients here. They were patients with low tumor burden, um, and in that group shown here, we did see two of three of the patients achieving a uh, complete remission, and those remissions um, were maintained. And so that is the data that I wanted to share in follicular lymphoma and CLL. Um, just some take-home thoughts on cellular therapy for follicular lymphoma and CLL. So we know that <clears throat> CAR T-cell therapy with axicel antisticel has a high response rate, and those responses are durable in patients with follicular lymphoma um, with two or more lines of therapy. We still see significant efficacy even in the high-risk subgroups, specifically those with uh, POD24. Um, finally, uh, lysocell appears to be effective in patients with CLL who have received multiple lines of therapy, including high-risk disease, and further use of a brutinib with lysocell appears to be safe and hopefully um, effective in the long term. Uh, thank you very much. All right, excellent. Those were two great talks uh, going over mantle cell and uh, CLL follicular. And now we're going to change uh, gears a bit and move into audience question and answers. The, the first theme of questions that we've received coming through have been regarding the timing for manufacturing um, due, due largely to the studies that we've presented in the large cell se section talking about manufacturing challenges uh, in terms of the failure rate and how critical is it for the timing, especially in light of the data that are being presented at this meeting from the YTB323 rapid production product. Uh, I would start off by answering those questions saying timing is very critical for our patients, not so much the manufacturing, but the start of the apheresis to get the manufacturing going. That we know that for the three approved products for large B-cell lymphoma patients, the manufacturing timeline is somewhere between three to four weeks realistically, for getting the cells back and infused into our patients. And for those that have a refractory or rapidly progressing disease, that can be quite treacherous. And so the discussion about early referral feeds directly into that so that you start the clock as early as possible. These patients always have a insurance approval that needs to happen prior to getting their apheresis appointment, and that sometimes can add a week or longer. 
Um, and so that's why we discussed the potential for use of bridging therapy because the timing is quite um, daunting for some of our patients if they're already having symptomatic progression and therefore use of bridging therapy may be required. The, the second part of that question was how often are there manufacturing challenges? And I would say that is somewhat patient and product specific the patient part of that may be due to the immune system functionality of this patient. If the patient has had lots and lots and lots of chemotherapy, including bendamustine, um, their ability to manufacture a product may be limited because of their T cells already being beat up. The so-called garbage in, garbage out phenomenon where you aphorese T cells that are unfit, it's very difficult to manufacture a product successfully. The product part of that, though, is that some of the manufacturing challenges early on uh, for both tisogen like Lucille and lysocaptogene have, have had a few challenges in terms of uh, returning a successful product. These are things that are being addressed rapidly by the manufacturers, and I think they will be worked out. But you really get one shot at making a CAR T cell for a patient, and so making sure that the product can be delivered on time and rapidly is very important. And I think that. All three of the companies in that space are doing their best to make sure they deliver a product as rapidly as possible. I'm going to send a question next to Dr. Sagal. Um, we've received several questions regarding bispecific antibodies, which is a similar but not quite overlapping talk from what we've given today. Some of these questions have focused on the comparison of bispecific antibodies in follicular lymphoma, as well as if you have any thoughts on how these might be sequenced in patients with large B-cell lymphoma. Yeah. I have that same question, um, and I think it's a I think it's a good one. Uh, we uh, at our institution we do have a number of bispecific trials that are open, and um, right now many of those patients are enrolling after if if they've relapsed after CAR T cell therapy. Um, but we are using we are enrolling people on those trials that have not received uh, CAR T cell therapy, particularly for older patients or those that. Um, we think might not handle the um, cytokine release syndrome or neurotoxicity of CAR T cells well. Um, I am encouraged that the bispecifics uh, include not just CD19, but also CD20, and so I'd have liked to try that if, um, if patients progress after a CD19 CAR T cell. Um, but I do think it's an encouraging option, and I'm eager to see the long-term data on, on bispecifics, which I don't think we have yet, although some of that will be presented, I think, at this ash session. And so I think it's an open question, one we don't have a ton of data for, but I, I think that there is data to say that bispecifics can be um, successful after CAR T cells, and I'm not sure about the other way around um, with CD19 bispecifics, but it's something that um, we'll be eager to, to see as time progresses. Excellent. Thank you. And then, um, Dr. Neelapu, there have been a number of questions in the uh, chat about uh, management of toxicities, um, specifically some questions regarding the potential use of anakinra or of prophylactic steroids uh, to try and mitigate cytokine release syndrome or neurotoxicity. What are your thoughts on, on that subject? Yeah, so I think, uh, as the audience probably knows, uh, tocilizumab is the only approved agent for management of CRS. Um, and uh, if tocilizumab is not effective, we use corticosteroids, but corticosteroids are a, a sort of a blunt instrument, so they induce broad immune suppression, and there's a concern whether that could potentially impact cortisol efficacy. Um, so our go-to third-line agent, if both if a patient is already on tocilizumab and um, 
uh, high dose of corticosteroids and still not responding, if they have grade 4 CRS, uh, or go to third-line agent is anakindra. This is really based on some preclinical studies that have been published a couple of years ago showing that uh, anakindra could potentially mitigate both CRS and ICANS. And uh, there is uh, anecdotal evidence as well as some case series, case reports that have been published uh, now showing that anakindra could potentially help in this situation, especially for grade 3-4 CRS. Um, anakindra, as you may know, is an IL-1 receptor antagonist, which is approved for uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, but it's quite well tolerated. And uh, it's also based on the correlative analysis showing that IL-1 uh, beta uh, goes up very early during the CRS phase and seems to be a, you know, one of the critical mediators, just like IL-6. Um, so I think there is good rationale to use that, uh, although it's, uh, it's undergoing, it's being evaluated in a number of clinical trials now, some of which are being presented here at this meeting, uh, both in the therapeutic setting as well as the prophylactic, uh, giving anakindra starting on day zero, uh, since at least preclinically does not seem to impact uh, cortisol uh, efficacy. Uh, there's very limited data in the setting of ICANS, uh, how beneficial it is. Uh, to me, I think, uh, I think the evidence is not clear, although we do use it for grade four ICANS, uh, and occasionally for grade three ICANS if uh, the patient is not responding to no corticosteroids. Uh, with respect to prophylactic um, you know, corticosteroids, uh, there is a, a study that is done on the Zuma 1 on the cohort 6, um, uh, where patients get a dose of uh, dexamethasone before, uh, before the infusion of cortisols um, with the idea of uh, mitigating uh, toxicity and delaying the onset of uh, toxicity. And what the data showed, which has previously been published and is going to be updated here at this meeting, uh, is that um, it does, uh, the, the response rate as well as the durability seems to be quite good. It is, did not seem to be impacted as compared to historical data um, in the cohort one and two, which are the pivotal cohorts of Zuma one. Um, it does seem to you know, decrease the incidence of uh, grade three or higher CRS, and the onset of CRS uh, is becomes more delayed uh, as opposed to so starting on day two. If you don't give prophylactic steroids, now the onset of CRS is more at uh, day four, day five. And uh, the eye cancer rate also seems to go down. So I think uh, some centers have started to use it, uh, but uh, this data set is based on a um, uh, single arm uh, cohort of about, I think, 40 or 50 patients at this point. Excellent. Thank you. All right, Dr. Sagal, there are a few questions here regarding your presentation, um, specifically on the POD24 population, um, your thoughts on if they're behaving more like a transformed follicular lymphoma, and perhaps that may be why they're benefiting in a similar way to large cell patients. Same for Richter's. Um, there seems to be a difference in outcomes for patients with Richter's as opposed to the, those that have refractory CLL. If you could comment on your thoughts on both of those regarding CAR T-cell efficacy. Um, we do know that people that have early relapse in follicular lymphoma often um, present with transformed disease. And those that aren't truly transformed, I agree that they often um, have a sort of rapid pace of disease growth and while may not meet criteria for, for true transformation, often, often do have some features of an aggressive disease. Um, 
whether, I, I think that the performance of, of Axacel in both follicular lymphoma and large cell lymphoma are quite good. And so um, sometimes I think that I hedge, hedge my bets by, by giving CAR T cell in that, in that setting. Um, because the, the outcomes are good for both. For Richter's transformation, um, I, I don't know that we have enough data. I wish I had seen, I could see more data in Richter's transformation for CLL. That study I showed was quite small and, and the results were good. I think in, um, in the real world setting, um, if there's data, I don't know about it, but I think I struggle to see good outcomes in those patients no matter what I do. I'm not sure how, how you both feel on that topic. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so I think uh, the data that you showed on Rictus is interesting. Um, uh, in our experience, we have not seen good outcomes in terms of durability of responses with uh, Rictus. And, um, but I think the one difference is uh, the case series that you showed. These patients, all of these patients uh, also were on BTK inhibitors uh, uh, through the leukapheresis and even after cortisol infusion. Maybe that made a difference based on some of the emerging CLL data. I think uh, I agree with you. We need more data. We need to study this um, uh, in more detail. There are a few questions that I'll tackle here regarding um, recent exposure to chemotherapy, uh, ways to try and prevent deterioration, and then again about the timing for CAR T cells, which kind of feeds into that. And I'll speak on the large cell component for um, Recent chemotherapy is something that unfortunately is usually uh, seen in these patients with large cell lymphoma. Um, patients that are refractory or progressing on their uh, most recent line of therapy obviously have received chemotherapy. And in the Zuma 7 and in the uh, TRANSFORM study, the majority of patients were refractory to frontline therapy, implying that they very recently had chemotherapy and yet still could manufacture successful products. So CHOP-based chemotherapy may have an impact on CAR T cell fitness, perhaps, uh, if it was in the recent past. However, it doesn't have a material impact on the inability to manufacture or to receive a successful product. So chemotherapy is not uh, one size fit all. We do think that bendamustine perhaps may have a deleterious effect on T cell fitness, as Dr. Nilapu showed in the mantle cell data that recent exposure to bendamustine may have a bad outcome on, uh, for patients with mantle cell. That's often why when we talk about use for bridging therapy of polituzumab, rituximab, we don't talk about bendamustine as part of that. And I, I generally omit bendamustine when I'm giving it to a patient who might be eligible for CAR T cells for that specific reason. Regarding the um, timing for CAR T cells, which we touched on before, the Belinda trial was the, the one randomized study that did not read out positive. And in that trial, there were many factors that might have contributed to outcomes that were not as good as we would, had hoped. And I'd refer you in the audience for a detailed analysis to a review paper that I wrote earlier this year with Dr. Lori Sen, published in Blood, that dives into all of these issues. But I think in general, one of the main parts of that trial, which had some challenges, was that it was about six weeks from patients enrolling to actually receiving the CAR T cells on the standard of care, I'm sorry, on the tisgenic leucal arm. And that timing is critical. Again, back to being a broken record of referring patients immediately, waiting that long, patients often will progress and patients that are progressing when they receive their CAR T cell often have a, a chance for, for outcomes to be even worse. Um, we are uh, seeing lots of great questions coming in and we'll try to get through all of them in the remaining few minutes that we have left. We're right up against time here. So in the last moment or two, I'll turn over to Dr. Nilapu uh, for a question regarding CD19 antibody treatments 
prior to CAR T-cell, I think you touched on this a little bit before, but maybe speak for another minute or so about what we know or what we don't know in that space. Yes, I think uh, this is an area that needs to be studied further. First, um, I think the main question is, is there an interaction or are the epitopes similar between the existing anti-CD19 therapies that are FDA approved, uh, such as long, uh, such as long Longer T, uh, which is the CD19 ADC, um, or tefacitamab, which is a naked CD19 antibody, and the CD19 CAR T cell therapy products. Um, and as you know, all of the no, CD19 CAR T cell therapy products use the FMC63 antibody, but it has an epitope overlap with uh, tefacitamab. Um, and um, Longer T, um, I think it's not yet clear whether there's an epitope overlap, but um, in my personal opinion, I think um, the doses of tefacitamab that are used are at a very high level, uh, and it could saturate the cell surface. In fact, there is some evidence to that where in a two-case series that's been published by Sloan Kettering, where they did serial biopsies after giving tefacitamab at weekly intervals and found that um, there is uh, the CD19 surface expression by flow goes away, um, yeah, because of the masking of the epitope on the cell surface. And it takes about three to four weeks after the last dose of tefacitamab before the uh, CD19 becomes visible on the cell surface by flow. Uh, so for that reason, I think um, tefacitamab should be avoided uh, before if you're considering CAR T-cell therapy in this patient, or if a patient received tefacitamab, uh, sufficient time needs to be allowed, uh, probably several weeks to months, before considering CAR T-cell therapy. With longer T, I think is less of a risk because longer T is given at a very, very low dose and it is internalized uh, uh, following its binding. So it doesn't stay on the cell surface for too long, unlike tefacitamab, which can stay on the cell surface. So I think uh, we have had, uh, and there is some evidence uh, published in Blood Advances by the Wisconsin group where 14 patients who had uh, prior longer T went on to get cortisol therapy, and uh, the response rate, CR rate, was about 45%. So I think uh, uh, longer T could potentially be used, although uh, when possible, we try to avoid that as well. Um, thank you for joining us today. Appreciate your time. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash H-E-H-860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Kite, a Gilead company.